Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground, and I'm Esther Averam. On this show, the second in a series featuring unheard voices of resistance from 2018, this is part two of our presentation from a recent D.C. Council public hearing where residents spoke out on brutality and misconduct by the Metropolitan Police Department. Yes, we talk about the administration of Donald Trump building a wall, but you have allowed a wall to be built between those you've hired to police. We have hired to police us and those who we've hired to serve us. The July hearing was held after several controversial interactions between police and residents in D.C.'s predominantly black neighborhoods and after no officers were charged in recent police-involved deaths of black men and boys. We talk about stop and frisk and jump out doesn't exist. Let's keep it real. We know it's real. We know that there is racial profiling in Ward 7 and 8. We know there's racial profiling in the rest of the wards in the city of Washington, D.C. All that is coming up. Councilmember Trayon White. First, I would like to thank uh, Chairman Charles Allen for hosting this very important conversation about what is community policing and how do we hold our police department accountable and also our elected officials accountable and also the community. Um, for me, far too long we have had heated conversations about what is truly community policing. I started this conversation with a series of emails about two, three months ago after I was in Ward 8 late at night and got a phone call. During that phone call, um, I came to an incident where there was two young men detained in a car and was held for over an hour and was told they were not able to leave unless they produced a gun. And so in that instance, I learned that the police department uh, said this was a, a ethical and um, acceptable practice that they held people without arresting them. Um, until they, they or someone bring a gun to the scene of the crime in order for them to be released. This raised a series of questions as I started a Facebook Live post. During that time, I then learned there were other members in the community that, it's, that, that this has happened to them as well. Um, and so this hearing is a beginning of some conversations about honesty, about how we can better our department and also our community relations. As I reflect on a series of incidents that's been happening all over the United States of America, it's important that as we as leaders uh, be truthful and transparent on how we handle these, um, these serious and sensitive matters. I see the family of Jeff here who was also uh, a young man who was a victim of homicide at the hands of the Metropolitan Police Department. I see other people in the audience tragedy what is happening to black and brown individuals all across the United States of America and we're talking about people who are supposed to be protecting and serving are all metropolitan or police officers bad no but there are some bad apples that make it bad for everyone else and gives the police department a negative perception I as a young man who grew up in southeast Washington DC know what it's like to be vulnerable, to be afraid, 
to be put my back up against the wall at the hands of this police department. This is not a bad MPD session, but this is about honesty. I was hospitalized twice, assaulted twice by the Metropolitan Police Department, and it's documented. And far too often, I hear uh, the police department say, file a complaint. You know you have to file a complaint. In 2006 and 2007, I did just that. I filed a complaint with the police department and the Office of Police Complaints. Just about four months ago, the officer who assaulted me, um, I saw him riding on a detail down Pennsylvania Avenue for the president. So not only did I file a complaint and go to the hearings and go through, through all that stuff, go to court, uh, sue the D.C. Uh, government and win, but this officer got a raise who we pay to protect and serve. And, and during this time, I was a uh, college student, A.B. student, 3.5 accumulative GPA at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, no record. This is a young black man riding through southeast D.C. And far too often, this is the case for a lot of our residents. And we're here to figure out how we can work as a government to better the relationships between the black and brown community and the metropolitan police department. I want to thank you again and also the other members who are here that is concerned about these issues because I believe in the District of Columbia the narrative has, has got to change. And we have said everything is okay. We've also ran the narrative that crime is down. During a month in Ward 8, we had 22 people shot in one month. We still were saying that crime is down. We can't get to the truth unless we acknowledge the problem. And as leaders, we have a responsibility to do just that. I think that this hearing is necessary, but it's just the beginning. And we have to continue to tell the truth and also change our policies about what truly is community policing. Because what we have today is problematic and we need leadership that's going to deal with their officers accordingly and not give them a pass. And I believe that with the help of the council, the mayor, and the chief of police, we can accomplish those goals, but not doing it passively. We have to be aggressive, we have to be truthful, and we have to be intentional about what's really happening in the streets of Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you, Council Member. Sharice Muhammad. Good evening. Thank you, uh, Council Member Allen, White, Gray, uh, for this forum this, uh, this afternoon, this evening. I was here this morning, and I have to be honest, I'm, uh, well, let me start by saying I'm ANC uh, 7006 uh, single member district, but also chair of 70. I was here earlier this morning at the Wilson Building, and I learned a lot listening to Peter Newsham. And to be very honest with you, I scrapped my testimony, and I took some additional notes. So I'm going to resubmit my testimony to the council member and to the committee so that I can be on record with solutions. What I learned this, this morning in listening to uh, Chief Newsham were a few things. I first watched his disposition, which is to me highly problematic, because attitude among the MPD reflects leadership. I watched uh, Chief Newsham address the council. There was no sense of accountability. The answers to the questions posed by the council were not answered. Data that was requested was not given, let alone unknown. And even Director Tobin from the uh, DC Police Union First thing out of his mouth was that the data collected on the part of the MPD police is inadequate. 
So how do we begin to assess, evaluate the practices of police when there is no data to corroborate if it's good or bad? Unfortunately, the people of this community are not being heard, systematically not being heard. Unfortunately, the incident from June and more recent incidents, and this is not uncommon east of the river, let's be honest. This has been systemic practices, behavior among MPD. Now, I won't say all because as an ANC commissioner, we interface with Commander Taylor of uh, 6th District. We have a number of officers that we have a working relationship we check in with them, we talk with them, they come to our meetings, and they hear directly from the constituents that attend the meetings and the community meetings. However, when I looked at the video this morning of the incident from June 25th, MPD showed up to the scene on Sheriff Road in front of Nukes, already escalated, already hostile, already in gear to exercise force. Now, when I look at the numbers, uh, Ward 7, according to Director Tobin, 184 use of force incidents in Ward 7, 199 incidents of use of force in Ward 8. This is a practice. This is not uh, exceptions to the rule. This is the rule. This is what's happening. And as I'd like to say to the council, Policing in Ward 7 and 8 does not look like policing in West of the River. We're talking about two different paradigms. Uh, young people, students, get in trouble in Ward 3, Ward 4, Ward 2, just like our kids in Ward 7 and 8. There's no difference. The difference is the environment West of the River is not as hostile. The narrative is not the same. And therefore, the practice is not the same. So I'd like to begin with one, when we as constituents complain, that data should be collected. When police officers are consistently finding themselves in incidents from sexual assault, like the gentleman just testified, uh, battery, assault and battery, and whatever other uh, crimes that are being committed by the police with a badge, that data should be collected. Because when you as counsel asked Chief Newsham this morning, where was the data? And he said really nonchalantly, and he's not being held accountable to the people of the community, uh, we don't have that data. You don't look at that data. You don't review the data so that it can, we can talk about evaluation and improvements. So it begins with what are the police doing and is it being tracked, which we know now it is not, by his own admission. My name is Marion Gray Hopkins, and I'm not a resident of, DC, of Washington, D.C., but I was born here in Washington, D.C. I have family here in Washington, D.C., and I have mothers that have been impacted by the policing here in Washington, D.C., I am a member of the Coalition of Concerned Mothers. It's an organization, it's a sorority of mothers that have lost their children to police brutality, community violence, and what we're dealing with, mass incarceration. 
My son, Gary Hopkins Jr., was murdered at the age of 19 in Prince George's County, which some would like to call Ward 9. Gary, in November of 1999, was sitting on the ledge. Let me just back up for just a minute. Gary, at the age of 19, was attending a dance at a local fire station just minutes from our home, a dance that was hosted by his supervisor. He had every right to be at that dance that night. Gary had paid peacemaker that night and broke up an altercation between another party goer and a friend of his. When they began to exit the fire station, Gary sat on the ledge of the windowsill of the car, making sure everybody was still in place, that they were in their cars, they were ready to leave. When an officer blocked them from exiting, got out of his patrol car with his gun already drawn, put it to Gary's temple, pulled Gary off of the car, turned him around when a second fellow officer made one fatal gunshot wound to Gary's chest, killing him. This is not a practice, not unique to Gary. We just heard about earlier today, we heard about Jeffrey Price. We know that Alonzo Smith here in Washington, D.C. We know that Trey Joyner here in Washington, D.C. We know that Terrence Sterling here in Washington, D.C. And the list can go on and on and on, but I will stop there. The practices that are happening here in Washington, D.C. are not just unique. It's happening across this country every single day. Every 23 hours or less, a person of color is being murdered because of the color of their skin. Brown and black people every single day. It appalls me that you, some of you sat here today and pretended as this is, this is the first time you're hearing these stories. We've been dealing with this issue for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is nothing new. Nothing new. And I, and I vowed that I am not going to sit back. I know there are mothers that are not here today. There are people that are not here today because they are afraid of the police. I have no fear. I will not allow anyone to be, make me afraid. So I'm here speaking on behalf of those mothers across this country, those that are here, those that are not here, to say enough is enough. We talk about stop and frisk and jump out doesn't exist. Let's keep it real. We know it's real. We know that there is racial profiling in Ward 7 and 8. We know there's racial profiling in the rest of the wards. In the, in the city of Washington, D.C., because if you're black, you're not supposed to be in a certain ward, as they said, west of the river. You're not supposed to be there. And enough is enough. This needs to stop. I mean, people, the incident just occurred. These people grew up in these communities, and they are being harassed in the communities that, that they live in. One of the things that police officers can do is they can become acquainted with the people in the community that they are, we pay to protect and serve us, not to kill us, but they fail to do that. They come out with the narrative to the media that is lies until someone finds, finds out otherwise, and then they, they're backpedaling to tell the truth. The truth should be on the onset. There's a camaraderie amongst the police force. There's that blue wall of silence. And it's not just some bad cop, there's a bad crop. And it needs to be overhauled. We're dealing with a white supremacist racist system that needs to be overhauled, and it needs to be overhauled now. Now. So don't sit here with the political BS because you need to do something. Each of you that don't do anything are carrying the blood on your hands of those that have died, those that will die, and those that have almost died. You are being 
voted in by the community and you should do something. We should be sitting down as a people, as a community with the police officers, with you, with those in the community, and we should be sitting down having some dialogue but because when we walk when we're black, when we talk when we're black, that we, people are, they are afraid of us. As someone mentioned, we pay taxes just like everybody else, just like the white folks, the folks in suits, but it doesn't matter who you are. My son was in a two-parent household. We worked. He was in college, a full-time college student, doing the right thing, but he ends up dead. My son's final college essay was, It Takes a Village. I heard those words here today. We need to go back to becoming a village. I implore you, everyone up here and the police force in Washington, D.C., to become part of the village and let's bring about change because accountability and transparency does not exist today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can pass the mic down. Uh, DR from the Danewood community. I've been living here for, I want to say, 31 years, all my life. Just basically wanted to, like, test basis on that June 13th incident. I was one of the guys that was actually there that recorded the incident. The 13th incident and the incident when they came back for the retaliation. I just want to say, though, like, what y'all seen in that video, like, that's nothing new. Like, we've been going through this in this community for the last three, four years, like, that's why we retaliate so much towards them, like, it's like an ongoing beef, like, two years ago, we had the same video that was somewhat similar to the one that, that got put out where me and the officer, I want to say we got into a verbal confrontation where he told me I couldn't stand around him with a mask and gloves on at freezing weather, below 32 degrees, so he tried to handcuff me, I snatched away from him, and we just kept going back and forth. The video went viral, 17 million views. As weeks went past, the police officers kept, just kept provoking us. Eventually, they came like how they came on the 25th. About 50, 50 officers, they arrested eight people from our uh, neighborhood. Everyone got charged with assaulting a police officer, threats, inciting a riot. This case continued on for probably about three months. So as the process went on, I ended up getting my stairway order taken away from the block that the process happened on. One of the officers didn't know that, so they saw me on the block, and I ran from them. My uncle that's in the audience, he told me, let's go down there and show them the proper paperwork to leave you alone. Me and my uncle go to the precinct, show them the paperwork. As we showing the, the clerk the paperwork in the precinct, she called the officer that was looking for me down there. We get into a physical altercation. They locked me and my uncle up for assault on a police officer. During that process, I was on the phone with my lawyer. She ended up coming down there, getting me out, and they ended up keeping my uncle. As that process went on, the next day, they dismissed my uncle's case, no paper in my case. So I went to OPC. That's another reason why I came down here, because you said the paperwork. I went to OPC. I done been to OPC numerous of times. I'm done with them. That incident I just told you about, when they dismissed my case and dismissed this case, OPC told me they was going to give a 15-year veteran officer more training. Why does he need more training? He's been, been on the force for 15 years. I, I, I'm just lost. I feel as though, honestly, it will never change. That incident I just reflected on, the officers that was part of that incident, every one of my friends pushed paperwork. 
they move to another sector, but that does not going to say if more officers that's coming in are not going to do the same thing that they've been doing. Exactly what you've been saying right now that's happening. As years pass, they moved them officers and brought new ones in. And that's what's being showed on 2013 and on the 25th. It's like it's an ongoing cycle. It will never change. You got officers that hop out telling grown men, let me see your waistband, Joe. How is that a way to, how is that a way to say something to another grown man? It's like, Sir, let me see your ID. Sir, could you stop? Let me talk to you. It's, it's just like they look at everyone in the community like villains. Back in the day, my grandmother told me, when they was coming up, police officers, police the community, they'd park their car, get, a, get out, walk around, speak to the neighbors, go on the store owners, ask them how they doing, how they, they been going, walk up, to the, walk up to the people in the community. I, I heard some neighbors say in a uh, meeting the other day that they scared. They've been living in the community for four years, but they scared to go outside. I think if you go outside and say something to them gentlemen that you see outside, I think it'd be a better response than rather you calling the police. I think that should be your second option rather than just calling the police. Most of the time when people hang out in the neighborhood that I'm in, if someone come out and say, clean the trash up, get off my car, that get done. That person come in with their groceries, anything. People move out their way, help them with their groceries. Just like Anthony Green said, that neighborhood that I am, crime down 50%. We don't need the police around there. We police our own neighborhood. And that's, and that's what's been going on for the last years. Thank you very much. Ms. Goggins? Yes, it's hard, hard to follow that up. My name is April Goggins, and I'm a co-organizer with Black Lives Matter DC and the creator of Keep DC For Me. I am a proud Southeast Ward 8 resident and have lived and raised my daughter in Anacostia for almost 12 years. First, I want to thank you, um, Councilmember Allen, for not only holding this hearing that we've been desperately demanding, but also to do so after work and for intentionally doing so without the intimidation of police. I'm unapologetic in my direct, blunt, sugar-free form of accountability, but I'm also that way when it comes to expressing appreciation. Now, let me start with one other unapologetic statement. Chief Peter Newsham is utterly, absolutely, and unapologetically pathetic. He is insecure, purposefully misleading, a terrible liar, and disgustingly unlawful. This is based purely on factual statements, observed actions, court transcripts, and of course data. He had the audacity to testify under oath this morning about violent crime in the district and make judgments about who is good or bad, who is criminalized, and, and who are violent, which racist cops he investigates and those that get promoted. He was literally unable to provide one single reason for adding more police than to make people feel better and make people feel safe. I hope every single person who is begging for police, hanging on Newsham and MPD's every word, eating ice cream, playing softball, and riding bikes with cops, hear that. You are being hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led astray. MPD is playing you. And let us not forget we testified about all of this at his confirmation hearing, where all but one council member, Council Member Grasso, voted to confirm him. So much of this is your mess to clean up. And let's move forward. Jeffrey Price, 22, was chased to his death in D.C. by Metropolitan Police Department on May 4th, not far from here. On May 10th, MPD executed a warrant at the home of the mother of Jeffrey, Price's girlfriend, um, and killed the family dog in the process. On Friday, May 11th, 
MPD officers conducted a warrantless search of his mother's property, which is still under investigation. Both of these incidents were clearly meant to scare just family and friends as they grieved. I was uplifted today when someone affected by those incidents said, they tried everything, but we ain't never scared. Daquan Young, 24, was shot and killed in D.C. by an off-duty police officer on May 9, 2018, in front of the Brooklyn Recreation Center. Every public statement by Newsham and MPD after this murder contradicted the previous one, as it did in Jeff's case. The media reported the inconsistencies, but there was no more discussion after one news cycle. Immediately dismissing black eyewitnesses that ran for their lives as he shot wildly through the block and hitting cars. The same with Samuel Cooper, and then on June 12th, Marquise Alston. And um, I just want to say that one of the things that has happened in watching this video is that there are two kinds of opinions about this video. The first is the people who want the young men to be uh, respectable and they're worried about uh, what they're wearing and what they're talking about. And then there's the other 90%, which is other young people who finally feel like what they're saying is not crazy, who finally feel like there are people all over the city that, that are experiencing the same thing um, that happened to them. And I just want to end by saying, Respectability isn't going to save them or us. It never has and it never will. Folks were respectful in their Sunday best during the civil rights actions, but that didn't stop dogs from tearing the flesh from their bones or water hoses from knocking them unconscious. So I just want to say let's not replicate the system's thoughts and actions that have justified the physical and social control of black folks for hundreds of years. Let's not think that they are the exception because these young men are articulate and show up. Black folks do that all over the district and we write them off. We must radically shift the way we interact with all black people or we are doomed to continue down this path of self-sabotage and unintended consequences to keep us seeking power instead of harnessing what we already have collectively. Thank you very much. There's a lot there, so thank you. And I will say... Commissioner Muhammad, and I think there was at least several other witnesses who talked about the need for data and the unacceptability of the fact that it's not there yet. Uh, there was a question asked today about stop data, frisk data, trying to look at the gun recovery unit, you know, how many stops were there, how many guns were recovered, all of that. And I was very disappointed in the response. I also don't 100% believe the response. I believe the data is collected in different ways but I don't believe that the questions are being asked the right way to give the type, to give answers to the questions that were being asked today. This has also been a very strong point of frustration with the committee when it comes to the implementation, the full implementation of the NEAR Act. We funded what we were told it would cost to do all the data collection, to make sure that we had all the stop and frisk data, all those data elements collected that we required within the law. And I'll note, there are several jurisdictions that don't need a law to get that data collected, but that's what we did here. Only to find out, as we went through oversight hearings, that actually, no, that funding was not sufficient, and no, they had not actually gotten any of the work done. We finally did work with them to where they got out. They talked with the vendors. They talked to the contractors to do the work, came back with a realistic dollar amount. We made sure this spring that it was in the budget. It's built in on October 1st. All that funding is accessible, and that'll be certainly part of my job is to follow and track that accountability to make sure that it is implemented, the data is collected, the data is reported, because it does tell us something. It tells us something, and what it should also be doing is informing the decisions that we make, be that budgetary and policy and legislative, or be that internal management and the way in which a department is run. 
And that's why that data is so important. I'm disappointed that it takes a law to get it done. I'm disappointed that it takes two different cracks at a budget to get it done, but it will get done. The other piece I wanted to ask, and it's unfortunately, it's a, it's a theme, but um, to, to Mr. DR, you, you talked about the Office of Police complaints. And one of the frustrations I've had is that while in some respects, I do find OPC to be doing good work and trying to collect data, in particular on the element of, you asked, you know, so what ended up happening to that officer? And all it was was they need to be retrained. There was a question earlier in the, the session earlier today where it said, how many officers that have been referred to OPC for egregious actions, how many have it's resulted in a firing? And the answer was none. So the question I have is, we had that conversation. The, the chief talked about saying he would actually like to have authority to be able to fire and terminate an employee. And one of the things he talked about was that he believes that because of the arbitration rules from his union contract, that it goes to an arbitration process that then forces him to take back someone on the force that he says he would otherwise have terminated. He said he'd like to work with the council to change that legislation and to change that to give the chief more ability to fire. Now, in the past, that was also something that people were concerned around that from the standpoint of, would you see a chief exercise that right in a way that lacked trust? But I want to ask you, uh, did you have any thoughts or reactions to that piece of the conversation? Ms. Goggins looks like she wants to jump in real fast. Absolutely. So I will say that actually Peter Newsham does have that right. And there was information that we gave to the council last year about one case in the 5th District where an officer was disciplined for not wanting to write a false warrant about assault on a police officer because her sergeant was pissed off that this young woman had cussed at him or something. And that's how we found out that even though there's the CBA, and I guess the best example of this is Chairman Maul of the, the, the D.C. Police Union, mm-hmm. who has three sustained cases of use of force. The week that he became chairman, Kathy Lanier pardoned all of those because she has that power. So the, the fact of the matter is, even that's why it happened with Terrence Sterling, um, that was actually mostly because of pressure and things from you know being able to see in the media. But I think... The council and everybody has to dig deeper because it's not, we've been saying this for three years, but the fact is that what they're telling you, and you go back and look at the DOJ um, MOA, they have completely backslid. You could go line by line, and they are out of compliance with that and as far as the reach that Peter Newsham has. And so some of these officers' names that you're hearing that I live in the 7th District. Those officers are getting promoted. There are people who have been in communities for 15 years where the same officer that jumped out on their uncles and aunts is jumping out on their kids. And I'll, James Butler, okay, 7th District. People that have jackets this thick that are still getting promoted, that are still getting commendations, and it happens every day. And I don't know why. I was surprised the council was pretty forceful today, but I also know that next week, Peter Newton is still going to have a job. And to be honest, Councilmember Gray, I don't think that you understand the depth of this community's dislike of the police. And the fact that you would fight another council member or put out a statement the day before begging for police, for police Chief Newsom to come here when he could watch this on TV for $250,000 a year salary and then do his job with the oversight of the committee, 
But um, that is very telling about a community that is screaming to you that they do not want the police in their face and that you would bring the one most violent police to come talk to the same black people that are terrorized by the people that he pays. Okay. Well, let me do this because it's only fair to, of course, let Mr. Gray have a chance. Let me turn to Mr. Gray for his questions or response, however he'd like to respond. I really don't have any questions. I really, I want to thank you all for, all, all of you, uh, for your testimony. And with respect, my issue around Newsham being here today was that I felt he needed to hear. You know, he needed to hear from, and I expressed that to the uh, chairman, he needed to hear the sentiments that are being expressed by people at this table and have been expressed before. I was the one that asked the question about the stop and frisk data earlier today. And I was completely, I believe they have the information somewhere. And if they don't have the information, then why don't they have the information? And the information needs to be analyzed. It needs to be used around decision making. And I was the one that also called for the folks who walked into the Price's home to be fired. They should be fired. That was the most disrespectful that I have thing that I have seen in a very long time with MPD. But I guess my, my only question about that is, well, then where, where was that concern over these last three years when we've been fighting to get that data from the NEAR Act that we have a lawsuit? You know we have a lawsuit about this data that we are suing Newsham, Bowser, and Donahue because for whatever reason, the council doesn't have the ability to make sure that the NEAR Act is getting implemented the way it's supposed to. So here we are talking about data after the council already passed unanimously the law that requires them to get this data. And the last thing is it's not just east of the river, right? I say that because what happens is what happened to Daquan Young and what happened to Sam Cooper three weeks after Jeff was murdered happened in Brentwood because it's a black neighborhood and that the same thing is happening all over this city and the gun recovery unit is allowed to do it. None of this is new. We have testified for four years, at least four times a year on all of this. You are listening to residents speaking out at a D.C. Council public hearing about brutality and misconduct by the Metropolitan Police Department. You just heard an exchange between Black Lives Matter activist April Goggins, Councilman Vincent Gray, and Councilman Charles Allen. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. And now more from the hearing. Uh, as I mentioned, we've also been joined by uh, Councilor Kenya McDuffie. So let me turn to uh, Mr. McDuffie. When I grew up in the District of Columbia, some of my earliest memories of the police were my early years at public school, hearing the side-by-side band, officer-friendly program, and growing up playing ball in the boys' club and girls' clubs in D.C., uh, number 10 Boys and Girls Club in particular, I remember Officer Lynch, uh, who was always a presence there. One of my earliest coaches was a member of the Metropolitan Police Department. That changed drastically by the time I become a teenager. By the time I become a teenager, it was the mid-80s, 90s. We had the open-air drug markets. We had really record numbers of homicides. And 
we had members of the Metropolitan Police Department, Park Police, uh, Secret Service. I mean, any law enforcement agency in the District of Columbia seemed to be converging on my neighborhood and the neighborhoods where my friends live. My perception of law enforcement changed during those years. It changed pretty clearly the first time I was arrested. And it changed as I started to see my friends, my own dad, my brothers arrested. Very few people prosecuted or charged formally. Uh, but it was those interactions on those sidewalks, on those blocks, sitting on the stoop, that really changed my perception of the law enforcement in the District of Columbia for the worse. Fast forward, when I decided to go to law school, I remember thinking about where I wanted to work. And I'd become interested uh, in trial work and just automatically thought I would try to get a job working for the Public Defender Service. Uh, never thought I would be a prosecutor, ever. Because a lot of my professional experience that I was developing in law school was shaped through the prism of my youth. So those interactions with law enforcement, with those MPD officers, uh, getting thrown on the ground, told to take my Tims off, searched for no reason, told to move, arrested, taken to 5D, released without being charged, after paying a fee. Uh, that has shaped uh, a lot of what I thought about law enforcement, and my thoughts were not very favorable. When I hear Chief, you talk about trauma associated with violence. You are absolutely right. I know it firsthand. Same way I experience interaction with law enforcement, I experience interaction with violence in my own neighborhood. But there's also trauma associated with police encounters. Those encounters that I had early on, I didn't know it then, but it was the trauma of my experience seeing my friend have the police run into his home without a search warrant, no exigent circumstances, and punch him in the face. Having people be arrested in front of me, uh, not knowing then what the law said about reasonable suspicion or probable cause, uh, but knowing it wasn't right. That trauma associated with police encounters, I think, is what I've been hearing from residents of Ward 5, uh, and across the city for that matter. Uh, it's a sense of frustration uh, from people who feel like the police department is just really converging on their neighborhoods and is not there to protect and serve. I know that's not what MPD believes in, and I know that there's training that occurs of officers, but in my gut, and I think and the intuition of a lot of people across the District of Columbia is that there's got to be more that MPD can do to build and foster a sense of trust. There's got to be better approaches to uh, community policing that could help move us in a positive direction. Because when I was at the scene after Daquan Young was shot and killed in Brentwood, I saw the trauma. I saw the trauma. When you see, as I have, either as a member of this council or 
as an ordinary black man growing up in the District of Columbia, bodies laying uh, behind yellow tape, there's trauma associated with that. But there's similarly trauma associated with seeing police enter your neighborhood and turning and running when you've done absolutely nothing illegal. It's still happening. It was happening when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. And that is real, tangible trauma that impacts how individuals interact with the police department here in the District of Columbia, as I'm sure it is with cities across the country. And I need to hear specifically what the department is doing to address that. Because at the end of the day, the trauma associated with those police encounters is not going to help solve homicides and other violent crimes when they occur. There was a no snitch culture that existed when I was growing up. And it wasn't even no snitching. It was just don't talk to the police. Just don't talk to the police. So in this position where I sit now, where my job is to represent the interests of Rose 5 residents, I have that context. I've also had the opportunity and privilege to work with law enforcement in my career as a lawyer and as a prosecutor. And I know the lion's share of officers do their jobs zealously, courageously, every single day. And perhaps don't get enough credit for that. And perhaps they don't get enough credit because of that perception and the experiences that people are having uh, on in communities across the District of Columbia, like the experience that I imagine those young folks had uh, at Nick's Barbershop. My name is Eugene Perrier. I'm with the Stop Police Terror Project DC. Uh, appreciative to have the opportunity to testify. I think I agree with a lot of what's been said. I, I would just say a few things. You know, one thing that I think has to be addressed here that is the elephant in the room is the overall issue of stop and frisk, which is the most discredited policing practice in the entire country. Every city where it's ever been studied except for one, you know, you look at how many people are actually being arrested from the stops, which are 85, 90% black and brown people, it's less than 1%. I, I actually looked this up. The most uh, a, a sort of positive thing I could find was Newark, New Jersey, where 78% of the people they stopped ended up being completely innocent. So as much as we are talking about the need to keep the data, which I'm 100% for, uh, to talk about what's going on, the reality is the reason the data is not released is because they know it's going to show what it showed in every single other place. So the council can act, and I think the council should act, and I think that we should outlaw stop and frisk in the District of Columbia just baseline, plain and simple. I agree. I would say the second piece that I have to ask here, and many people have spoken to it, I mean, you know, certainly every council member speaks to it from the point of view of the election season. Everyone speaks about it at every public hearing, that the most important thing that we need to do is to invest in our communities. Now, many people know the All-Star Game is coming here uh, to Washington, D.C., coming up. I think it actually, the festivity started today. You know, we put $638 million into that stadium. There's a 1% gross receipts tax on every single business to pay for a stadium that is owned by billionaires that generates funds for billionaires and brings almost nothing back to the average people in the community. Where's the 1% gross receipts tax on every business for the Deanwood community? You know, you look at the $55 million that they put into the stadium in, in uh, uh, Ward 8 right now in Congress Heights. Let's say you had 100 young people here earlier from the younger program. That's $550,000 per young person. That's more than double the cost of a medical school education. 
So my question is, why is it so easy if you are a white, wealthy developer, primarily who live in Maryland and Virginia, that DC government seems to be an ATM for unlimited cash, but when people say, I have nothing to do, when people with community organizations say, I have no money, then it becomes, well, you know, we don't know, we could do this, maybe we could do that, here's $500,000, here, here's a million dollars, here, there, and other where, the pyramid is upside down. We need to turn it the other side up. So when we say, let's spend $638 million on people instead of on baseball stadiums for billionaires, it's really not rocket science. And when you look at what the council does, you know, when it came to Initiative 77, everyone in the council was ready to overturn it in two weeks and pass emergency legislation and turn it around. So when the council wants to do something, you do it. So if the money needs to be there, the money can be there. And this is the final thing I just want to say. I, I'm not... I'm not saying this as a threat. I'm not saying this as something I'm advocating. I'm not saying this as something I want to see happen. But I think we just have to be realistic about the ongoing impact of this type of policing in communities. I think we've seen the tension in many of these different videos. The reality of the gun recovery unit, who, by the way, their logo is a skull with a bullet hole right between the eyes. That's a kill shot with vest up, one in the chamber. So they're treating it like a war. Well, the reality of war is that means there's going to be casualties on both sides. And from Nat Turner to Baltimore after Freddie Gray, every single uprising of black people in this country has been sparked by state violence against our community that the authorities refuse to rein those people in. And D.C. is on the cusp of it. So we got to ask ourselves what we really want here. Thank you, Mr. Preer. We were able to do that. Um, I had Ms. Scott next on the list. My name is Leanne Scott. I run a nonprofit that provides media coverage and media production training to under-resourced and traditionally oppressed communities in Washington, D.C. We worked out of the Potomac Gardens Public Housing Complex, which is in Ward 6, for three years, but we are now operating out of We Act Radio in Ward 8. Grassroots DC quite recently produced a series of videos of DC residents describing their experience with the police. We've posted 13 videos on our YouTube channel so far. They described some very familiar stories and some that I hadn't even considered. Mahima, who is editing the video, is far more familiar with the footage and will describe them in more detail. Mostly, I'm just going to give you my impressions, but I did want to tell one story that didn't make it into this series. Back in 2010, a DC Public Works employee was handcuffed and searched on the street as a result of a sting operation that didn't go exactly to plan. This man had nothing to do with the crime, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The police initially were going to let him go when they, did, when they didn't find anything and their informant told them that he was the wrong guy. But when he asked for names and badge, and badge numbers of the officers who had wrongly detained him, the cuffs went back on, the man was searched for a second time, and surprise, surprise, suddenly he had drugs on him. It took $9,000 in legal fees, at least a month in jail, six months in a halfway house, and another year on probation to get past that episode. That was possibly the worst story, but most of the others aren't too fun either. Several described stop and frisk situ situations which on occasion escalated into violence. Women described being se sexually harassed by the police. An African-American and deaf woman describes being harassed for not responding to questions or orders that she can't hear. Trans women of color are harassed because the assumption is made that they are sex workers, which should be decriminalized anyway, but I don't want to digress. Another woman described how she regretted calling the police for help because the police actually made the situation worse. In fact, everyone who talked about calling the police for assistance were met with disrespectful and unprofessional behavior. 
These people were treated badly even when they couldn't avoid calling the police. One sexual assault victim described not wanting to call the police because she couldn't imagine that even if everything went the way it was supposed to within the current system, the result wouldn't have been what she could describe as justice. All but two of the 17 individuals we recorded for, the, we recorded for this project described wanting another system in place, one that involves extensive community input and even management. Under the current system, the police do not serve and protect the members of the community, at least not in the communities where Grassroots DC works. Based on the stories we've recorded, the police understand that they have power over members of the community, and they seem to believe that their job is to use that power to control them. When those folks who have been harassed and brutalized by the police express their concerns publicly, become civically engaged, and organize their neighbors to join them in demands for change, the police target them even harder. In my years with Grassroots DC, I've heard many, many more stories that have not been recorded. Some of the worst stories that I've heard come from the folks I worked with at the Potomac Gardens Public Housing Complex. I worked with a number of seniors there. They made it clear that police misconduct is not only widespread, but there's also nothing new about it. I worked with one man whose brother was mortally wounded in an elevator by the police who had him in custody and were taking him to trial. Needless to say, he did not get his day in court. That was in the 1970s. Another woman got into a squabble with a neighbor in the 80s. It was loud, but not that serious. Now she has a charge that she has to explain every time she applies for a job. She works regularly, but she also feels certain, certain that she's been turned down for work as a result of something that happened when she was in her 20s. One young man who would come into the computer lab that we had set up to study for an exam that would get him into the city's fireman EMT training program. He wanted to serve the city and his community. This was a very bright young man. He had a run-in with the police that resulted in a plea deal for what I would describe as a bogus charge. Now, not only does the city not have a fireman or EMT from the community because they wouldn't accept him due to his record, but Potomac Gardens has a resident who might just have been able to afford market rate housing in the city if he'd been able to pursue his chosen profession. This is an old problem, it requires new solutions, and you can begin by listening to leaders from the community who are calling for full implementation of the NEAR Act, community control over the police, and take some of that money that you're using to over-police under-resourced communities and invest it in programs that the community is asking for. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Scott. Uh, Ms. Goodine. Okay, my name is Mahima Goodine, and I just wanted to state that police duties stem from the duties of slave catchers. It was their duty to control the movements of blacks and return them to their owners if captured. It has a direct parallel to the role in which we see police today. It was revolved to serve as a military solution to social problems. If you have a community that is not funded and its resources being taken from it, then that creates frustration and it is the cause of social hills within our community. There are so many food deserts and lack of nutritional value that is funded but not seen in the, in the DC community. Police themselves have proven that they are not the solution. Every time there is an uproar in violence, the mayor and the police chief's response is more cops. We see this in main areas in which these same communities have a high number of police. We should redefine public safety Instead, give resources to the individuals, such as neighborhood watches, instead of giving them to the police, who just come in and brutalize and kill people. It's about understanding the threat the police pose. I'm currently working on a documentary about policing in black communities. One of my participants is a deaf individual who had was actually been victimized because of her deaf identity. A black identity causes those who are deaf to be ridiculed and harassed. 
Because you lack the hearing ability, it will make it hard to be questioned when you can't understand what is being asked. Many African-American deaf individuals are often killed due to police brutality of them not knowing that they are deaf or not. The institution of slavery and the control of minorities, however, were two of the more formidable historic features of American society shaping early policing. Slave patrols and night watches later became modern police departments, which are designed to control minorities. This is why police is viewed so horrendous and viciously. This is because of the origin of police force. What we should do is make police training start with a history lesson and stop pretending that racist and crooked cops do not exist. That's all I wanted to state. Thank you very much. And Reverend Harrison? Yes, my name is Reverend Alfred Harrison. I'm the co-founder of Angels of Hope Ministries over in Southeast D.C. Ward 8 in, uh, uh, on uh, Elvin's Road Corridor. I'm joined by the co-founder, uh, Reverend, Reverend Claudia Harrison. We've been servicing that community for 23 years. Uh, former Mayor Gray uh, remembers probably visiting our site. I just want to be a four-point bullet here and keep it quick. Uh, we talk in every profession and vocation. I've always had diversity and harassment training. It is time for our officers who will you have increased their budget to police the community to have cultural sensitivity training. It starts with them being integrated into the community, into the grassroots organizations, and understanding what the community is saying to them. They also should be required to have routine psychological profiling so that they can be sure that they are not traumatized by the incidents that have occurred here. Our young people who are with us, uh, who we travel down with us to this hearing, um, and witnessed a uh, video of a 2011 sh gun down uh, who uh, Raphael Briscoe on Elvin's Road was actually uh, 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 gunned down by a police officer, an unarmed citizen uh, who was running away from the police officer that particular time. It has not stopped. I personally have a son, graduate of Tuskegee with two bachelor's degrees, graduate of the University of Maryland with a, with a master's degree in accounting, who was stopped and frisked unjustifiably while he was picking up young men out of the Stanton Oaks environment and transporting them to a basketball court so that they will be out of their community for four hours. It was unfair. He didn't know how to respond. They searched his vehicle. He did not have anything, but he was, he was asked openly to actually tell where he worked in a high sensitive environment in front of the young people and this was a bad uh, this was a bad uh, image for them to portray upon him who has been a role model in the society. Not only if they're going to be racially profiling and socially economically profiling our young people, then they need to have psychological profiling. The third point is accountability. Yes, the mayor may have hired them, but you confirmed him. He is the chief, and therefore we are holding you accountable to hold him accountable. Funding and investment. We need to stop just funding the policing of our young people, but we need to fund the programming like SYEP, which you cut, that we have many workers here tonight who could not even get validated through the process because the system has been broken for them. Yes, we talk about the administration of Donald Trump building a wall, but you have allowed a wall to be built between those you hired to police 
we have hired to police us and those who we've hired to serve us. We have gotten to the point where we call it, unless it goes viral, we think it's fake news. But I come to tell you this evening that God is looking over this land and he's saying to you, what have you allowed to happen to your brother Cain? His blood cries out. That is the eulogy that I gave at Roscoe Briscoe's uh, visual in seven years ago. So I say to you, and I'm inviting my youth to please stand with me. We are taking a stand, and if you turn your backs on us, the slave owners hired a slave steward to be in the field and watch over them. Chief Newsom and these police officers have become a slave steward to our young people. We, you, if you turn our backs on us on November, we will turn our backs on you. You have been listening to part two of our presentation of D.C. residents speaking out on brutality and misconduct by the Metropolitan Police Department at a hearing held July 12, 2018 by the D.C. Council. As a follow-up to today's show and our show last week, M.B. Cottingham, who said Officer Sean Logicono conducted a public anal cavity search on him, has filed a lawsuit against Logicono who is still working for the Metropolitan Police Department. And as of our deadline, the officers who conducted an illegal search at the home of Denise Price and shot to death the family dog at the home of Jeffrey Price's girlfriend also remain on the force. And key provisions of the NEAR Act recently passed legislation which would compile data related to police activities such as stop and frisk incidents are still not being enforced. This is the second in a series featuring unheard voices from 2018. We will return with our regular programming in September. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. And if you're a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On The Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say On The Ground. On The Ground is also on Twitter, and we're on iTunes under the title WPFW On The Ground. I'm Esther Rivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.